So we spent the summer considering concerns vital to how we think and live uh, in this very challenging culture um, that we're in, and the conclusions of that series in regard to identity and gender and sexuality, um, they're important conclusions as we consider um, how they affect our primary calling as Christians. But as we, as we think about our lives in this world and consider our primary calling, we need to be increasing, increasingly clear on what our primary calling is. And the first verse that Amy read here today, and I'll put it back up here again, from Philippians, more so than, than many, probably any other passage in Scripture, uh, in terms of a very clear statement as to what we are to be engaged in as a church comes from the book of Philippians. So it's Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now we're going to spend a few weeks in the book of Acts here as we introduce the book of Philippians and start our new series. And our new series is on this idea of what it means to stand side by side together for the faith of the gospel. But this statement in Philippians is a clear statement as to what we are to be about as Christians, regardless of, of who we are, what our jobs are, how old we are, anything. This is our calling to stand together side by side with one spirit, which means that we all have a sense about us as being unified and focused on something together. We have one mind, which means that as we think about what we're here for on this earth, what we live our lives doing, why we raise our families, why we work a job, why we recreate, why we do anything, it, our minds are focused on one common thing. And it is something that we do together. We are not individually doing this. It is, Paul says, that you are standing firm together as one man with one mind, with one spirit, for the faith of the gospel. So we're going to explore what that means over the course of this series. But it's clear that we are here for the gospel. And there are several phrases that Paul uses throughout the book for the faith of the gospel, for the progress of the gospel, for the advancement of the gospel. And there's two things that, that here on the front end we need to acknowledge. First of all, it means that our lives are characterized by the gospel. Just like this verse says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That means our lives are reflecting the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, self-control. These are the things that are to characterize our lives. These are the things that reflect the transforming power of the gospel. But it also means something in regard to our speech. 
Paul says earlier in the book, he says, I want you to know, brothers, because he's writing from prison, and there's some concern and some questioning about Paul and his mission because he's now in prison. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This is Paul's primary concern, you see. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so not only do our lives need to reflect the gospel, but our speech also needs to communicate and speak the gospel. Michael Green wrote the book, Evangelism in the Early Church, is considered a, a modern classic and one of the standards on this subject of evangelism. He says, Christianity is enshrined in the life, but it is proclaimed by the lips. If there is a failure in either respect, the gospel cannot be communicated. So Paul was urging them to have lives characteristic of the gospel, one mind, one man, one spirit for the faith of the gospel. But he was also bringing up the example of the Christians in Rome who because of his imprisonment grew more confident in the Lord and were able to speak the gospel without fear. So there is the, is the living of the gospel and the speaking of the gospel that we've got to be concerned with. Now, as we look back on the 10-ish years that we've been in existence as a church, we have done a lot of work in preaching the gospel. We've done a lot of work in equipping the church in, in what it means to be transformed by the gospel. We've done a lot of teaching and preaching and counseling, redemption, everything. We've really pushed the church to dig deep, to look hard, to evaluate our lives, and to create lives that are really worthy of the gospel. But we've done little, or not enough, to strengthen our collective confidence. Paul says they are, have been more confident. We've done little to strengthen the confidence of the church and to strengthen our ability to speak the word to unbelievers. It's an area that we need to grow in. We have people that are gifted and called to evangelism, and to them it's quite natural. However, to most of us, it's not very natural, and it is quite scary. But Paul commends the believers who were bold to speak the gospel. And he expects, as Jesus expects, all of us to be speakers of the word, proclaimers and witnesses to the gospel. Michael Green says this. He says, one of the most striking features in evangelism in the early days was the people who engaged in it. Communicating the faith was not regarded as the preserve of the very zealous or of the officially designated evangelist. Evangelism was the prerogative and the duty of every church member. The ordinary people of the church saw it as their job. Christianity was supremely a lay movement, spread by informal missionaries. The clergy of the church saw it as their responsibility too. 
bishops and presbyters, together with doctors of the church like Origen and Clement, and philosophers like Justin and Tatian, saw the propagation of the gospel as their prime concern. So we want to start this fall series on the book of Philippians. We sense that we need to grow in our concern for the progress of the gospel in our lives and in our speech so that we are moving forward with a common purpose as one man with one mind for the progress of the gospel. That needs to be our ultimate concern. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start with the book of Acts. The book of Acts sets a a beautiful context in in Acts chapter 16 for the gospel's entry into the city of Philippi. And the passage that that Amy read this morning is the the very first introduction. So I want to read it again. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So I'm just going to do, read it and kind of give a little summary real quick. So this is their second trip. Acts 13 and 14 describes uh, Paul and Barnabas' first trip. This is their second trip. So they're going back to strengthen the churches. Earlier in the passage it says that they were going to go back to strengthen the brethren, to strengthen the churches they'd already visited, which was essentially the churches of Galatia. So the book of Galatians is written to this group of churches. Um, Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Pisidia. So those four cities were the places that they preached in their first trip. So they're going back, okay? They're going back to visit there. And they have plans. But the plans changed, not by their initiative, but by the Holy Spirit's. It says that the, the Holy Spirit forbade them. So when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they were going up into this area, and they looked east, they looked west, and the Spirit is saying, no, no, that's not where you're headed this time. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia, and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. So this first message... I want to focus on the Holy Spirit and his role in the progress of the gospel. We've got to recognize that this is not something that we are are called to do outside of the leading and the power and the affirming of the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's not something that we are called to to perform as an act um, and duty to God I mean, it, it is those things, but it is, it is something that it is, we are empowered and pressed and led to do. And so the first thing I want to look at is that the Spirit guides and affirms those who are 
what Paul will say throughout his epistles, in step with the Spirit, or walking in the Spirit. And so essentially what this means is that there has been a, a decision in, in our lives that, that calls us, that, in, that, that compels us to be engaged in the things that the Spirit is engaged in. It starts when we are considering the gospel prior to knowing Christ. The Spirit is at work in us. The Spirit is moving our hearts and moving our minds and bringing us to the point of believing in Jesus Christ. So as we increasingly follow that leading that the Spirit is doing, we are increasingly in step with the Spirit. Then we come to know Christ, which is a result of the Spirit's work in our lives, and our faith in God who saved us through Christ, we then are to learn about what the Spirit is doing. And that's what the entire book of Acts is about. The Spirit of God is working to fulfill the Word of God. The Word of God is proclaimed in the prophets of old, in the Old Testament, and to fulfill the Word of God, specifically being the coming of this child who would deliver the world from Satan, sin, and death, and to establish his eternal kingdom where peace and joy and love reigned forever and ever, and all evil would be destroyed. That is, that is the promise of the Word from the very beginning of Scripture. And so the Spirit is engaged in the work of fulfilling that Word, and that fulfillment came in Jesus Christ, but it's not done yet. That, that message of Jesus Christ, that the child has come, that the King has come, is to go out into all of the world, and then Christ will return and finally set up and establish his kingdom. And so the Spirit is at work in the world to draw people to knowledge of Jesus Christ, to draw people into the kingdom, into the family of God, and then Christ will return. That's what the Spirit is doing, everybody. So to be in step with the Spirit is to, is to align yourself to the work that the Spirit is doing. The Spirit is building the kingdom of God, and he's called us as his family to build the kingdom of God, to build the church. So it's that, that big mission that we need to step into and be engaged in and say, the Spirit is advancing the gospel and building the kingdom, therefore, I will be on that same work, because the Spirit indwells me. And I want to be in step with what the Spirit is doing. So it's that, it's that big commitment to the purposes of God, but it's also our daily lives and relationships. And, and we all know how, how easy, well, not necessarily easy. We can make the big decisions and we can make large commitments to Christ, but in the day-to-day, -day, it gets harder. It's, it's, it's a lot that the Spirit has done through the gospel and through our relationships, through his work in us that get us to the point of believing the gospel and say, I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ. That's a lot. It may take years. But to flesh that out into our personal lives is a lot of work as well. It's a continued effort to commit to our, our personal walk with Christ and our personal integrity, our marriages, the raising of our children, our diligent work, the service to others, our generosity in all aspects of our lives. And it's a commitment to gospel ministry. It's a commitment to gospel. It's a commitment to acknowledge that I may not be an evangelist. I may not be a preacher. I may not be a church staff person. But I recognize that I'm called to advance the gospel 
in the sphere that I'm in, with the gifts that I have, in the capacities that I have. That has to be a part of what it means to be in step with the Spirit and to be committed with us as a church, with the Spirit of God, with Jesus, to stand firm as one man, as one mind, for the progress of the gospel. Tim Keller gives four characteristics to what this commitment to gospel ministry looks like and, and what it means to have a life. And we're going to expand on these as we go, but I just want to mention them. First of all, <clears throat> it's, it's organic. It is a natural part of our lives. It's not something that is tacked on. It's something that we recognize that we are about doing. As we commit to live worthy of the gospel, we have to recognize that me, that we speaking the gospel is going to be a natural part of what we're doing. It's not forced or co coerced. And I'm going to talk more on that later. It's relational. So it's organic. It's relational. It has to be relational. Now, we see a lot of examples in Scripture where, where Paul or Barnabas or, or Stephen or other people are speaking in public places. Those, those sermons that are proclaiming the gospel are introductions of the gospel into new places. There's a, it's, a, it's the forming of a beachhead for the gospel into those new places. But the gospel spread not primarily by preaching, because Paul would go to these major cities and he'd hit half, the, half a dozen major cities and says, okay, my work is done here. He'd planted churches. And then the, the gospel spreads throughout this, the regions around those cities and around those churches through relationships, through our efforts to love and build trust with other people. And that takes, especially in this culture, with the suspicion around evangelical Christianity that's there, that takes time. And it could take years. When I was a freshman in college, so this is 1990 and 91, um, there wasn't a suspicion around evangelical Christianity that there is now. And as, a, as somebody living in the dorms, it's a secular school, Iowa State University, you are immediately thrown into a context where relationships can be developed, where you're spending a lot of time with, with those that don't know Jesus Christ. You have a lot of opportunity to love. You have a lot of opportunity to stand firm in your, in, in your morals and your virtues because there's a lot of, there's a tremendous ability to, to live in contrast to the world. And I found that, it, that, that evangelism during that time of my life was very easy. I could share my faith fairly regularly and saw people come to Christ fairly consistently. Over the decades, it has changed. There is a lot more suspicion around evangelical Christianity. I'm a pastor. So there's, all, there's, there's another level of suspicion and so when I come into my neighborhoods, I know because my non-believing friends tell me after I've been there for a few years about all of the ideas and suspicions they had around me when we moved into the neighborhood. And those suspicions kind of go away because they see our lives, that they know we love them, that we want to be a part of their lives, and that we don't come in with all of our judgmental attitudes. We come in with love and an effort to serve. And then we have opportunity to speak the gospel, and then it is 
respected. It may not be believed, but it is respected. It has to be word deploying. So organic, relational, word deploying. That means that um, the word has got to go out. We have to speak the gospel, which means then it's going to have this fourth characteristic. It's active, not passive, which means that we are praying, because Paul instructs us to pray in regard to evangelism, that we would be bold, that we would be clear, that we would have open doors. Bold, clear, open doors. You don't see very often where you have examples or commands to pray for non-Christians. Lots of examples and commands to pray for open doors, clarity, and boldness. Now, Paul does say that he prays for the salvation of Israel in Romans chapter 11, I believe. So it's not that we can't pray for unbelievers, but the predominant force of Scripture in regard to our responsibility in evangelism is that we are ready to speak, we are praying for boldness, we are praying for clarity, and we are praying for open doors. So there's this active effort, and then... And then we take note, and I'll have some examples here in a moment. So organic, relational, word deploying, active, and then there's a relational integrity that needs to go along with it. And, and again, Keller's got three words that he likes to use. We are to be like, we are to be unlike, and we are to be engaged. Like meaning we live in a specific culture around specific kinds of people in our work, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. And... In order to be effective with the people in our spheres, we need to have some degree of similarity with them. But we are to be unlike them in that we remain distinct in our lifestyles in regard to the holiness that Christ calls us to. We are, not, we are, we are called to avoid gossip and drunkenness and sexual immorality and all of the things that makes us different. So we are to be like involved in the world and like them, we are to be unlike. We are to, to shine differently. And Philippians is going to give us some instructions on that. But then we are also to be engaged, which means we are willing to make the investment, the relational investments, the financial investments into the people around us. We are willing to serve and dig into their lives to move into those neighborhoods, to be a part of those schools, to, to be engaged in the world. So we'll talk more about these things as the series goes on. But Tim Keller then says, the quality of our lives marked by evident hope, we have an optimism. We're going to see in Philippians that it tells us, and as I've been studying for this series, and Philippians has been a book I've, I've studied for 20 years, but it is continually convicting. He says, do not grumble and do not complain about anything. About anything. So that you may shine as a light in this world. I mean, I don't think there's a single person in here that doesn't struggle with complaining. Right? It, but, but it's one of the unique things in Philippians that says shows us, shows the world our light. A young man that I, uh, that the Holy Spirit strengthened me to lead to Christ when I was in college. He was my next door neighbor in the dorms. He was president of our, of our, uh, of the, of the, of the university. You know, they have a student president. He was a crazy guy. 
but he came up to me and he says, you know, George, you are different. There's joy in your life that's consistent. And a few months later, he came to know Jesus Christ. His name was Dave Olson. I haven't seen him in, it's been over 20 years. But that was the thing that stuck out to him. There was a joy present in my life. And that, that joy is a unique aspect that, of, of the light that we shine with. He says, our, the quality of our lives marked by evident hope, love, poise, and integrity has always been the necessary precondition for evangelism, but it has never been more necessary than it is today. With all of the clouds around virtually every tradition within Christianity, Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Fundamentalist, Pentecostal, there is, there is a dark cloud over all of those. The, the world is waiting to see some real light, some real truth, some real power. So the Spirit is at work to transform our lives to be like this and to push us to be advancing the gospel. I want to also show you that the Spirit is strategic. You know, Paul eventually starts talking about going to Rome. But he wasn't concerned about going to Rome in this passage. He wanted to go into Asia. He wanted to go up into... So this is like Asia minors when they say Asia. And the Spirit was saying, uh, no, Paul. The text doesn't give us any answers as to um, how it directed Paul. Was it a vision? We see a vision at the third instance. But when it says the Spirit forbade him, How? Like, was there, a, was there a wall that they couldn't pass through? We don't know. It just was clear that they weren't supposed to go that way. Why? Because the Spirit had a strategic place for them to go. They couldn't go north. They couldn't go east. They couldn't go west. So they went to Troas, and then from Troas, they sailed to Samothrace, which is an island in the Aegean Sea. Then they went to Nicopolis, which is a coastline major city and then Philippi which is a Roman colony and they stayed there because of its strategic nature the spirit is at work to accomplish his purpose and none of us in here can say that we're the apostle Paul none of us in here can say that we're Barnabas obviously but you need to know you need to know that your gifts your abilities, your life circumstances, the people that God has you around, the family that you're in, the neighborhood that you're in, the job that you have, the income that you make, the education that you have, you know, you just, all of these things. If the Spirit is at work to progress the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit is at work in your life, in my life, in our lives as a church, all of us have been directed and empowered and gifted by the Spirit for the context that we're in, for the ministry of the gospel in that context, for the people that we're around. You are called to that place for the ultimate purpose of the progress of the gospel in that place. You are to be a light in that place through your lives and through your words. The Spirit is not just strategic at this high level. The Spirit is strategic in your life and in your context. Everything about you has been orchestrated and geared by the Holy Spirit to accomplish his purpose 
in the place that you're in. People will not believe that Christians have good news to share until they find that bishops and bakers, university professors and housewives, bus drivers and street corner preachers are all alike keen to pass it on, however different their methods may be. Again, that was Michael Green. God has called us to the Twin Cities. And we have a strategic ministry here. There's 3,500 churches in the Twin Cities. But he's birthed us for a specific purpose, for a specific place, for the specific groups of people that we are in. And we're going to talk more about this as, as we go on. The last thing I want to point out is that the Spirit is helping people Notice the last vision. I, I really love this. I hadn't seen it as clearly before or as profoundly. The third vision or the third direction of the Spirit in this passage is not the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus. It is the vision of a person. And it seems like this final directive of the Holy Spirit was designed to create within Paul and his team Sympathy. Sympathy for the people of Macedonia. They needed help. Help that only the gospel can bring. And we're going to see that, that, that Paul in all of his ministry always stayed concerned for the poor and those who, were who, those who were in physical need and those who needed healing, just like Jesus. But just like Jesus, there is a recognition that the physical needs in the lives of people are simply symbols and signs of the deeper spiritual need that everybody has for the gospel. Jesus, in John chapter 6, he healed a lot of people. He fed a lot of people. But a lot of people kept following him simply because he healed and fed them. And Jesus eventually says, you know, I'm going to stop feeding you, and I'm going to stop healing you. I'm going to stop showing miracles because you're not responding to my words. You don't believe that I'm the king of Israel, savior of the world. You're just here for a free lunch. But he initiated his efforts with material needs. And they came alongside of his words of the gospel. And that's what we're going to face. We're going to find people that need to, physical needs. Needs met. We also know that their deeper need is the gospel, so we're going to come alongside of the physical needs with the communication of the gospel. And we must stay true to that word, that word of the gospel. But we have to begin it with some sympathy. Do we see need in people's lives as cries for help? If we go into the, to the, to the burden, and I, and I hope you feel some burden. I feel a burden all the time for communicating the gospel to people. Sometimes the burden is because I care about the people and, and they're in need. Sometimes, to be quite honest with you, and I'll tell you a story about this, it's because I feel just guilty. Because I, I feel like I should be sharing the gospel more. But that gets you into trouble, which I'll tell you a little bit about here later. Um, but throw off the burden and the guilt and look into the lives of people. <laughs> Do you feel sorry for their lives that are absent of the gospel? One of the greatest things that compels me 
to, to share the gospel with people or, or to move and be praying for sharing the gospel with people is that I know that their, their lives would be so much more fulfilling and complete and joyful and worshipful. And worship, you guys, isn't something that we manufacture. Worship is something that we, we naturally come out with because of the joy that God has put into our hearts and the fulfillment that he gives us in the, in the course of our lives. I want people to know that. That every aspect of their lives, their marriages, their families, their food, their drink, their work, their recreation, everything could be this one great big expression of joyful worship to God, not idolatry that kills them. Do we, do we have sympathy? And I think we need sympathy. It's not just between you and God. I mean, it, it is, but God is moving you towards sympathy, not, not obedience out of guilt. People have physical needs, but they are signs for the gospel need. So if I were to leave you right here now, you're probably like, yeah, boy, I feel terrible. I haven't shared the gospel in so long. I haven't been praying for these things. Because we need the gospel. We need the gospel to do this. We need Jesus to do this. I don't, I don't want us to go through this series and come away with a sense that, that, that we feel increasingly burdened and guilty to be a part of the progress of the gospel. I want us to increasingly feel light and joyful and excited about sharing the gospel. We can avoid doing it out of fear of people. We're afraid of how they're going to respond. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of losing our reputation. We're, be, we're afraid of being classified as evangelical. We're whatever. So we can avoid it. That's one option. We can avoid it because of an unwilling to make the type of commitments to engage and invest into the world. And those investments are real. Those investments are real. It's deciding to stay in town on weekends to be around neighbors and friends that don't know Jesus. It's about taking and setting aside a portion of your budget so that you can spend it in ways that are benefiting others that don't know Jesus or enables you to be around people that don't know Jesus. It is, it is committing weekly portions of time to, to neighbors and coworkers that may need some time just to talk to, to be friends with. We can avoid ministry of the gospel by being unwilling to engage and invest. We can do it to strengthen our own sense of self-righteousness. Look what a great Christian I am. I shared the gospel 10 times this week. And we can just go about it with this checkbox mentality. Okay, I'm sharing the gospel. I can cross that off. That's a big... That's a big sign of my boldness and my commitment to Jesus. Or we can do it out of guilt and shame in order to get God off our backs and to make our consciences feel better. Or we can do it out of the gospel, which means that it is coming from the joy of knowing Jesus Christ, which is why our lives have to be coupled with it. If we're not experiencing the fruit of the Spirit in our personal lives, we're in no place to share the gospel. We won't want to, and it's not going to be taken as trustworthy because it's hypocritical. 
But if, our, if we're walking in Christ and experiencing the fruit of the gospel and the fruit of the Spirit, then it is going to generate a joy. And so, it, so evangelism is not just something that we direct ourselves to. It is, it is a part of what it means to know and walk in Jesus Christ. And the experience of eternal life that we have and the recognition and feeling of the love of God in us, it causes us then to love others, which means that if we see their true need is not just physical but gospel, our love is going to pour out and say, listen, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. I have two stories to close. The first one is about a time when I was burdened out of guilt and a desire to prove myself in sharing the gospel. So this was at the St. Paul location of Brasa, B-R-A-S-A, you guys know that? It's got smoked meats and that kind of stuff. It's a great restaurant. And I was there with a friend named Sean Murray, who was a guy that, that we led to Christ, our first little small group that met in Egan, Minnesota, when we were driving back and forth from Iowa still. And, his, and Sean, and this isn't the story, but it's part of the story, Sean, he had the same testimony that my friend at Iowa State did. You guys' lives... It's so full of joy and contentment. He, he said that to me. I said, well, would you like me to tell you about that? <laughs> would you like me to tell you about how you can experience that? He said, yeah, I'd like to know. And so I shared the gospel. He came to know Christ. So I was out with him some months later. And we were at a restaurant. And I don't know what it, I, I can't describe what it was other than a fe feelings of guilt and shame and a desire to prove myself. But I was just kind of in this mode to share the gospel out of this, this motivation. I, I don't know if it was frustration or impatience or what, or just not tuned in with the Lord or what. Uh, but I was there with him at this restaurant, and, the, and the, the, the waitress came up, and I just it's foolishly started stumbling over my words and sharing the gospel with her. And he was a restaurant manager, Sean was, and she left, and he, like, just got on me. He said, George, that was embarrassing, that was unprofessional, that was improper, da 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 And he says, she's been instructed not to talk about religion and politics. In the same season, I was walking down the street, Lindale Avenue at Lindale and 27th. It's a restaurant there now, but there was a laundromat. And I went by, and I saw this guy sitting in the laundromat, and again, I don't know, I don't think it was the Holy Spirit. I think it was more out of just kind of guilt and shame and a desire to prove myself. I went into the laundromat and shared the gospel with this guy, just sitting there. And we were talking back and forth, and he just stops and says, are you witnessing to me? <laughs> I just walked out. Both of those were extremely ineffective. It's hard to determine sometimes the leading of the Spirit, but here's what I know. The Spirit isn't leading with guilt or shame or desire to prove ourselves. It's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is moving us out of, a, out of, a, out of love, out of conviction, which is different than guilt. It's different than shame. The other story is a, about a about our efforts with this young man. He's a friend of Amanda's from school. And he came to our baptism. Came to our baptism in, in June. 
And so he's sitting there with us as a family. This is at the this is at Phelan Park, and so we were in that shelter, and 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 so I just asked him what what his experience and tradition was with baptism. It was just a very low ball question. All right? Oh, he's just telling a story, and then he starts talking some more. We're 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 praying always boldness, open doors, clarity. And he says, you know, but here's the funny thing. I was driving from Wisconsin here to, to Minnesota, and there was a huge storm. Because he said, I don't really believe in God. I don't believe anything. He said, but then I found myself praying in the midst of this storm. And I found myself conflicted. Why did I just pray? I don't believe there's a God, but why did I just pray? And so I just said, I said, you know what? That is the consciousness of God in you that he's given you that tells you that he is real and you need to seek him. And so we talked a little bit more. And over the summer, he, he and Amanda interacted and, and he had told Amanda one time, man, I can't, I, can't, I can't get out of my mind that conversation that I had with your dad that we had there at that table. And so he was here this past weekend. And I knew he was coming He's going to be there for a while. And I told the man, I said, Amanda, I'm going to ask him about that conversation. She says, oh, fine, you can, that, that'd be great, Dad. And so, so he's there, and I found myself wanting to, like, thrust in at this moment and at that moment. And I just kept praying, God, is there a time? And I don't want to push it out of pride or desire to be approved or to get, I, I want to do it at the right time. And so he's about ready to head off to school. His sister was going to pick him up and I was sitting down at the couch reading the paper and he just comes and sits down in the chair across from me and he starts reading. And so I said, hey. And it was totally natural. I said, hey, have you felt the urge to pray at all this summer? And we talked for an hour. And he's reading Tim Keller's book now, The Reason for God, or How to Think About God. Well, Tim Keller's got two books out on God. I can't remember. They're the introductory ones. Did it take some effort to overcome the fear of him rejecting me? Yes, it did. We're never going to get rid of that. Whenever we give testimony to Jesus Christ, we're going to feel the pressure of the enemy and the sense and fear of being rejected by humanity. That's going to be there. But if we're praying for open doors, if we're praying that we would be clear, if we're praying that we would be sensitive and loving and tactful and with poise in the people that we're around, and we're praying for open doors, the Spirit is going to move in us. And I just found, my, I just was sitting there, and boom, this question came out. Have you felt the urge to pray at all this summer? It was, it was I don't want to say it was effortless, but it felt effortless. It was natural. Michael Green says that evangelism was the very lifeblood of the early Christians. And so we find that day by day, the Lord added to their number those whom he was saving. It could happen again if the church were prepared to, pray the, to pay the price. Let me pray.